Well, good morning, Sunset Church. Um, it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak to all of you since I usually don't get to that often because I mainly focus with uh, the youth kids, the middle schoolers. Uh, but just way of introduction for those of you who are maybe newer, uh, recently started coming out to um, Sunset Church. Um, the Lord led me out of uh, sunny sa Southern California uh, last year to join the staff here at uh, Sunset Church in May. So I've hit, been here for like almost a year now. And through that time, I've discovered a lot of things about uh, this church family. Uh, one thing is I, I got to experience uh, Camp Tunes, uh, which I've come to realize is like, it's like the golden egg ministry of this church. Like, it, it's like the, the most important thing uh, on many of our hearts. Um, that's one thing that I've learned. I've also come to learn and appreciate all the various different ministries going on here at this church, while even diving straight into my responsibilities to, to humbly lead and serve uh, my particular area, the middle schoolers. And I'll admit, um, the transition hasn't always been easy. Um, even in less than a year, I feel like I've experienced like so many changes, uh, like being transplanted into a church whose dynamic rhythms and cultures are, are different from what I'm ac accustomed to. And since jumping straight into my role, I've been involved with a lot of discussions on church structure with the other staff and, and elders. Uh, so there's also the sense for me anyways that there's just so many changes with staff transitions, which are definitely bittersweet when we say goodbye to those we care about, like we will do later. Uh, we're going to miss serving alongside those we've labored with and grown with over the years. And sometimes when you experience a ton of changes in life, you're thrown off from what's comfortable, what's familiar. It makes you think or made me think, is there any stability in my situation? Will this church succeed going forward? And it can kind of feel like your hope dwindles when you hear about budget report projections at a church business meeting. The word deficit, you know, to some years is like a hammer blow of hope, right? Or maybe a lot of unanswered questions that you try to evaluate for yourself. What is the state of this church? Uh, where is it headed? Uh, with all of these transitions, who's going to be left to lead and to serve? And so there were some personal thoughts that sometimes occupied my mind these past two months. And I'll admit in front of all of you here this morning that at times it can kind of feel overwhelming. Uh, there's this part of me where you, or maybe part of you where you say to yourself, huh, I guess this job isn't as easy as it looks. Um, but if you only go with what I have already just shared about leading in a church that can sometimes feel overwhelming, you're probably thinking to yourself, man, when did Sunset Church hire such a big baby to be our junior high director? Probably some of the older husbands or fathers in here in this congregation are probably like, bro, you need a man up. <laughs> so why can ministry sometimes be difficult? Why do Christian leaders often acknowledge that ministry is hard? Because there's a lot of things weighing heavily on our hearts as leaders. And what weighs heavily on our heart isn't primarily, not primarily structure or transitions, the biggest hopes and fears in our hearts as leaders isn't buildings or budgets. Our biggest hopes and fears concerns the welfare of the people we have been entrusted to shepherd and to care for, seeking their best so that they would become conformed to the image of Christ. And so what burdens my heart are when some youth don't seem to have an interest in Jesus and the things of God. And that's some kind, sometimes it can be discouraging. They're constantly in my prayer is that God would soften their hearts one day to believe and to love Jesus. And what burdens my heart are that those who have altogether left the church and we don't even know if they're following Jesus anymore or walked away from the faith altogether. And we can only hope that they're at least watching online services, but 
honestly, we don't know. And what burdens my heart are those within the church who are maybe going through intense seasons of suffering right now, disease, chronic pain, or maybe the recent painful death of a loved one. And what burdens my heart are those who are going through marriage difficulties, but they have no one to walk alongside with, to share, to encourage, to help them live out what God desires for husbands, wives, parents, and children. And when those who are suffering are doing so alone, it can seem like no one in the church knows or even cares. And so for me, I sometimes consider the question, is my ministry effective? Am I faithfully caring and ministering to the people of God according to God's word? And so this passage that I was assigned by the providence of God served to be a a balm of encouragement for my soul, steering me to find my strength and hope in God alone. And I hope it does the same for you this morning, because the reality is all of us as Christians, as believers in the church, are engaged in some type of ministry. You may not be a pastor, but all of us are engaged in ministry. In fact, our role as shepherds is to equip the church, you guys, to do the work of ministry. So when you fellowship and encourage a fellow brother or sister in Christ, as that person opens up about their life, maybe a coffee for a cause, you know, that is ministry. When you teach Sunday school for little children or youth, that is ministry. When you deliver a meal to a church member that's bedridden or family uh, with a newborn baby, that is ministry too. So, my, so ministry isn't simply isolated to what Paul did as an apostle or as a pastor who comes up once a week to preach God's word. All of us ought to and probably are engaged in some type of service for God's glory, both inside and outside the church. But the question I want us to consider this morning is this. How do you know your ministry, your service to God and others is authentic, that is genuine, that what happens when you don't hear words of affirmation and people praising you for your service or your, your approach to ministry, when your service is not recognized, so you may be struggling thinking, should I even be doing this? And so the key idea I want us to see in our passage is that authentic ministry takes place when we are used as God's instruments for transforming people through the power of the gospel. And so the first aspect of authentic ministry I want us to consider is the measure of ministry. Uh, the measure of ministry, and in particular, a heart for fruitful people in verses 1 to 2. So in verses 1 to 2, Paul begins this section of the letter with the theme of commendation, to recommend himself. Just to provide a bit of context, Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church at the time uh, was kind of shaky, okay? Given a host of issues Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians with how they live their lives and the tone of defense in 2 Corinthians, you can safely say they were uncooperative at best and irritating at worst. You could also say that there was a level of distrust, which left a big fat question mark about Paul's ministry. Can his leadership be trusted? Is he a reliable spiritual influence on our lives as a believer? So the first few chapters of 2 Corinthians really carries this burden Paul has to defend himself. So here he anticipates this charge or perception on the minds of the believers in Corinth that if left unaddressed, will continue to strange and deteriorate this relationship Paul has with them. And it all comes down to this idea that Paul lacks commendation or letters of recommendation of a common practice in the ancient world that time. You see, back then, letters of rec were given to travelers on a mission or an errand. 
where someone else would commend the traveler so the traveler can receive hospitality in another town or city. So a foreign host would have some sort of vetting that this traveler can be trusted and to be cared for. Since the person was in good standing through a friend or a connection or a patron, others would be more likely to comply with a request. Now it's important to understand where he's coming from. He's not against commending others. He's not against letters of recommendations, okay? Or even commending himself. I mean, we live in a society today where letters of recommendation are just as common as the ancient world, okay? We have letters of recommendation for college applications, you know, which many of our uh, high school seniors are probably thinking about right now with March 1st, you know, those uh, UC responses, okay? We have letters of recommendations for job interviews, commendations for arranged blind dates with people we've never met before. We get it, right? But here Paul's basically saying to believers, hey, I don't have the letters of recommendations that you want. It is apparent that this, the, the other false teachers, those desiring to create this relational wedge between Paul and the church in Corinth, whether intentionally or not, they did have these dazzling letters of recommendation. They got the papers, okay? They got the likes. And since Paul didn't have this, believers sometimes thought of Paul, are you for real? Are you authentic? Can you be trusted? And he was sometimes questioned, sometimes met with relational distrust because he wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. Some of the church probably thought to themselves, well, he didn't walk with Jesus like the other apostles did. He wasn't there then. He didn't appear to have that sort of intimate one-on-one mentorship with Jesus that Peter did. He claims to have met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, but how can that be enough for us to run with? For us to be convinced he's real, that he's not just faking it until he tries to make it, that he's legit and sincere. So Paul knows and anticipates this, and he realized that his relationship with the church had sunk so low, had deteriorated and crumbled so much to this base level of trust between spiritual leader and church member that he imagines they want to see now, after all this time, some sort of credentials from him. It'd be like for our illustration purposes, and use your imagination with me. This is purely fictional, okay? I'm not like assuming anything. But imagine Pastor Joey, who's been here for almost 15 years shepherding and leading here at sunset church preaching and caring for the flock week in and week out and now after all this time you approach him maybe today after this sunday hey man are you an authentic minister of the gospel do you know what you're doing can i see your seminary transcripts you know what was your gpa did you get a master's or a doctorate that'd be ridiculous right And so where Paul's going with this rhetorical questioning is defending himself to express that he doesn't need that type of validation. How does he account for and explain what makes his gospel ministry legit? He swiftly goes to that in verse 2. The measure of ministry success isn't primarily the recommendation of others. One's effectiveness in gospel ministry is not measured by what opinion others may have about you. No, rather one's proficiency for ministry is the result it produces. Now, let me qualify by what I mean by that, okay? I just said results. I said a very dangerous word in a church setting where corporate or business gurus would easily peek their ears and say, hey man, preach. By results, I'm speaking about the kind of results he's talking about. The kind of result Paul speaks about, first and foremost, have to do with people, not programs, not even output like the number of tasks or whether 
Uh, the past, you know, we kind of wonder, like, what do the pastors do all week? They speak for 30 minutes once a week. And notice sarcasm here. But the question comes to mind, what about people? Is it all about the number of people we can bring through the doors or seats to fill services? What are the results that count as being effective? And so he expresses his abilities poetically complimenting believers of Corinth. They are his letters of recommendation. Essentially, their lives commend him. He's saying, look at you. You are my letter of recommendation. Your lives that I've invested in, poured myself into, persevered in loving and caring for, isn't that enough for you? The impact my ministry has had on your lives as I've sought to pull you to Jesus Christ, instruct you and feed you with God's word. Look at the good fruit your lives have, have bore. Isn't that evidence enough? You want a piece of paper with some handwriting? When your new lives in Christ is available for, for all to see and to witness. You want letters written on a paper when your lives are on Paul's heart? Paul was the one that planted this church. And he knew it impacted people in a personal way. He wasn't the kind of guy who just served out of duty and, and lost sight of people he ministered to. He saw himself as a spiritual father to them. And they were his spiritual child. And so their personal relationships were permanently engraved in Paul's heart. The fact that they were in his heart means he was deeply committed to them. When you write something on your heart, figuratively speaking, it means you know something well and commit them to memory through pondering, through meditation. For kids, what they ponder and commit to memory are Pokemons, okay? Different kind of Pokemons and their stats. For some guys, they commit to memory sports statistics for Fantasy League. For Paul, who did he commit his mind to? What they were going through? People, their pains, their struggles, their sins, their interests, their joys, their sufferings, their trials, their laments, their prayer requests, their hopes, their desires, their sorrows. He persevered in loving them. Yes, even when they were cantankerous, as Pastor Joey mentioned previously. And I believe Paul's perspective on gospel ministry is instructive for us today, especially in an age and a culture like the Corinthians where the measure of successful ministry is distorted from what the Bible teaches. Many things that would give a person status, notoriety, that perhaps you know, even recognition in an unbelieving world, it doesn't carry over when it comes to the church and what makes one effective. And these verses challenge us to examine what, how do we measure our ministry? Paul was used as an instrument of God to help the Corinthians bear spiritual fruit in their lives. And the conformity to the likeness of Christ spilled over into the community and the world through their lives. So we must ask ourselves, church, how are we growing to be known and read by all? How might be God calling you to grow as salt and light, demonstrating that you are bearing fruit, intentionally helping others live more fruitfully for God? The second point I want us to consider is the goal of ministry. The goal. Heart transformation in verse 3. So the transformed lives were a public witness of the power of Christ in them. Their lives read and seen by all comes from Christ. Christ is the writer. Paul was the instrument of delivery. In other words, Paul saw himself as an instrument to be used by God to see Christ formed in them. So he's not seeking glory for himself here. And in verse 3, he continues with this metaphoric contrast 
not ink, but with spirit, not tablets of stone, but tablets of human heart. But just what is he saying? Well, he's trying to show poetically, also with great theological precision, just how much better this new covenant is when compared to this old covenant. The old covenant is represented by ink, tablets of stone, which is temporal and fades. But the Spirit of God is writing on the tablets of human hearts. It's permanent. It doesn't perish. And what he's doing is comparing the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant in Christ. Tablets of stone in Paul's mind is to be understood in the ancient world as tablets of stone. Exodus 31, 18, after the Lord finished uh, speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave them two tablets of testimony, the law, the Ten Commandments. Whereas the tablets of human hearts reflects what God promised would take place when he spoke through the prophet Ezekiel concerning God's people. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart, uh, give them a heart of flesh. You see, the law of God, Ten Commandments, which is good, was not appropriated amongst God's people. The law became dead to them. In the Old Testament, we learn that Israel failed to obey God perfectly, to keep God's law. Their disobedience and idolatry desensitized their hearts of flesh as it became hardened into tablets of stone. And so the law of God was dead within them, as well as their spiritual hearts which is why God's spirit needed to act in a radical way to, to reform and change people from the inside out. And so the old covenant was clearly external in helping Israel understand what a conformed life pleasing to God looks like on the outside, but it didn't have that internal power to actually help them to perfectly obey it, which is why Jeremiah 31, 33, God promised to make a new covenant for this is the, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. For true change to take place, God's people needed a spiritual heart transplant. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. He established a new covenant through his blood shed for us, where forgiveness of sin came through the sacrifice of his own life. But included in this new covenant is a new heart and a new spirit, but in uh, so God's people aren't just saved from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin as well. And so throughout these verses, you'll see that the word heart is used. Here in verse 3, Paul transitions this metaphor to compare contrast ink with spirit, tablet stones with heart. But why does he do that? Why does he, well, what point is he trying to make? It's because we now here live in the age of the new covenant. So he acknowledges that this transformation and change in the Corinthians' lives are a result of the power of the Holy Spirit working into the hearts of believers. All of the fruitful living and evident growth in their lives comes from the fact that there is this inner dimension at work which led them to powerfully live out their faith in obedience and public witness. Because Paul inherently understood real lasting change, the kind of change we should seek, the kind of change that affirms authentic ministry is that marked by true heart change. When the Bible speaks about the heart, it speaks about the heart as the core control center of a person, of an individual. It, in both, it includes both mind, desires, and will. It's the source by which all actions of our lives emanate from, or as one theologian by the name of uh, Craig Troxell writes, the heart captures 
the totality of our inner nature. And a fundamental understanding of our heart and its spiritual nature informs us that the only thing that can change and transform the heart is the Word of God and the Spirit of God working together in the life of the believer. And the starting point for a new heart begins and continues with the gospel message of Jesus Christ with the power to save and make all things new. For some of you, that might sound kind of cliche, but let me get a little deeper. Paul understood that for true gospel-centered transformation to take place, which is our mission and vision here at this church, the words of Christ and the Spirit have to be in focus and applied to people's lives. And that's what Paul's viewed his ministry to be all about. Ministry of the Word of God, a ministry of prayer so that the Spirit would indeed transform stubborn hearts, wayward hearts, and calloused hearts. And this passage resonated with me because so much of my ministry to youth is grounded in a desire for gospel-centered transformation at the heart level. I don't want my youth kids to just grow to become moralistic Pharisees one day who don't see their need for a Redeemer, all the while their heads are puffed up with mere Bible knowledge or perhaps outward obedience. And that, and that actually shapes my teaching and my leadership. It shapes the conversations I have with them. My approach is to target their hearts so that they would see their need for God and find hope in Christ. It means that if they've done something wrong or misbehaved, I don't just seek to tell them, you're wrong and you need to stop what you're doing. There are times for that. Hey, that's not nice. But I also want to ask questions. I want to help them see how God's word and teachings pierce deep into their souls and exposes their, their motives. Why did you do that? Why did you desire to do that? What do you think that shows about your heart, about what you value in your disobedience, in your idolatry of this world or the things of this world? And all of this to help them to follow Jesus better. But for true transformation to take place, I have to help believers understand how one's words and actions reveal their thoughts, their beliefs, and their desires. I'm after root causes for their behavior and helping them to see connections between desire and what's ruling their heart in any given situation to make them think or act a certain way. Asking them, what were you hoping to get or achieve from your behavior? What do you think God is trying to teach you about what you value and desire in the moment where you acted that way? And so I approach ministry this way so that I may speak the truth of God's word in love. I can't just rely on secular wisdom with my own experiences or thoughts of leadership gurus and expect that that will bring about meaningful change in the hearts of the youth I care for. So how will heart transformation take place through the power of God's word? Through walking alongside people to know them. You have to know them so that you can know how to speak truth and love to them. Support those who are suffering. Admonish those who are unruly and encourage those who are faint-hearted. But you have to know what's going on in their heart, what they're going through. And it can seem like an overwhelming task to think we are able to accomplish such a thing. And the idea of being an instrument used by God to, to stir and move people's heart is so that, they, they, that it transforms their, their will, their desires, their habit and behavior to align with Christ and the glory of God. But it seems like an impossible task, right? That we'll never finish. Like trying to move an elephant that won't budge. 
And maybe some of us feel that that way in our ministry as we maybe try to care for another brother or sister where it feels like nothing's changing. And that brings us to our third point, the confidence for ministry, a heart of dependence on God. In the concluding verses of this section, we see that confidence and sufficiency for any kind of service rendered for God's glory and the good of people finds its hope in God. The power for transformation is not in us or within us, but God himself that mediated his power through his spirit. And so this idea continues by comparing old and new covenant yet again, because he under, Paul understood that God's story of salvation is a story of God's redemption of making all things new. This age that we live in is superior in this way compared to the times of Moses and the law. The age of the spirit of God now in the new covenant era is better. Something to keep in mind, the law of God is not like some sort of bad, evil entity, okay? Just want to clarify that. There wasn't anything inherently wrong with the Ten Commandments. After all, the law reflects the perfect character of God and how his covenant people were supposed to worship and relate to him. But there's a very clear distinction for what the law can and cannot achieve. In the Old Testament era, having the law of God could only kill in the sense that the law can't save you. It can't bring about perfect obedience. I think we realize that, right? We have laws in our country. We have laws in our state. We have laws in our city. Does it make people perfect? It can't do that. Bring about perfect obedience, holiness. So why can the letter of the law of God only kill? Because God's commands just bounce off and are rejected by hard human hearts. But what God does with his spirit is powerfully work from the inside out to soften, melt this heart of stone where one rebels and, and, and idolizes and worships the things of this earth rather than the creator so that they would be alive in Christ. The law of God only points out mankind's sin and rebellion, a pointer to death. Sin always results in death. But a new age has dawned. We have the power to truly be transformed and be instruments that God uses to bring about change in others, to experience new life in Christ through the gospel. So Paul's competency, his confidence to do the work of God, has called him to do, is rooted in his trust that if God is for him, it does not matter whether he gains human acceptance or not. He doesn't serve to please others. He doesn't serve out of a fear of man. He doesn't claim success in his ministry to himself. He continues to exalt Christ. But at the same time of having confidence rooted in God, his sufficiency is not his own strength, not his own merits, his own skills, his abilities, not other people recommending him, not diplomas, credentials. It reveals an utter dependence on God, that he cannot do anything without God. And so his heart posture is one of utter weakness rather than self-willed strength. The right kind of confidence for the people of God engaged in God's work and mission is not a confidence in yourself, not a confidence in the fact that you've been doing something for a long time, therefore it will be effective. It doesn't rely on past laurels or achievements. May the ministry of sunset, all of our personal ministries, all of our service, all of our counseling, all of our fellowship 
be marked by a posture of confidence and sufficiency in God. And there's no better way to, to grow in our confidence and sufficiency in God than by going to our needs in prayer, desperately seeking the Spirit to work through our hands, through our vision, through our mission to make gospel-transformed disciples here in the city and the world. And so just one encouragement for you is, is how are you currently praying for this church? The church is going through a lot of transitions, but that doesn't mean we, we lose hope, right? It just means we need to double down and place our confidence in what God will do and come asking, begging for his help, for his wisdom moving forward. And so may we be people of hope because we find our sufficiency in a big God powerfully and mightily at work through his word. That he can and will change hearts through the gospel we proclaim and the witness that supports the good news we share. Brothers and sisters, authentic service to God and others takes place when we are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ ourselves, by the power of his word and spirit. And that helps us then to effectively minister to others. And so our confidence to be actively part of this work isn't due to the fact that we're perfect instruments of God, but because the conductor, the grand musician playing the instrument is none other than God himself because he is with us and empowering us to do his work. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you still speak to us today. You reorient our hearts to what is real, what is true, and what is good, Lord. And I pray that we would examine our own lives, uh, ways where we haven't approached our ministry as followers of you the way you would desire us to. Areas where maybe we have placed confidence in the flesh rather than confidence and sufficiency in you. When all you desire and what you do desire of us is faithfulness. So help us now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.